1: wherever you get your podcasts.
0: He who fights with monsters should be careful, lest he thereby become a monster. And if thou gaze long into an abyss, the abyss will also gaze into thee. It is in an airport hangar in Honduras in 1982 where President Reagan meets with Rios Montt, a military leader and now president of Guatemala after a coup. Because Rios Montt was a fundamentalist Christian, he was popular with many in Washington. He was indeed the head of his own church, called the Church of the Word. He is a great man, Reagan said at the meeting totally dedicated to democracy. Sure, he may have taken over as dictator, but he scheduled elections next year. That pledge of an election next year was good enough for Reagan to remove all restrictions on his government receiving military aid, restrictions that had been in place since 1974. You know, he was elected in 1974 and never got the chance to be president, Reagan informed reporters. That wasn't exactly the case. Mont had lost the election and then lost a runoff vote in the legislature. Thirty years after the handshake in the hangar, President Mont was convicted, having run out his immunity in a human rights prosecution and genocide prosecution that began in Spain and was transferred to the Guatemalan
2: courts declares that the accused is responsible as the author of the crime of genocide.
0: He is responsible as the author of the crimes against humanity committed against the life and
2: integrity of the civilian residents of the villages and hamlets located in Santa Maria Nebach, San Juan Cozal and San Gaspar Chachul.
0: Mott and many of the other Guatemalan governments, including the general he overthrew and the one that would overthrow him, were found guilty of murder of indigenous people, really mass slaughter and genocides of the Mayans, the descendants of the ancient and revered civilization. His policy, known as beans and guns, was responsible for these killings. Beans, allegedly, for the villages that would cooperate with he and his army. Guns for those that didn't. Rios Mont and the governments before him were responsible for tens of thousands of murders. No distinction was drawn between the guerrillas that the governments were fighting and the peaceful, neutral villages. Rios Mont had a particular type of preaching that he engaged in. He once said, A true Christian has a machine gun in one hand and a Bible in the other. Hundreds of villages, millions were displaced. In the cities, opponents of the government, activists, professors, teachers, would end up in ditches. Likely the result of the Archivos, a special presidential death squad that was housed in the presidential palace. Guatemala is a mainly mountainous country in Central America. It was once at the heart of a remarkable Mayan civilization flourishing till the 10th century A.D. When Spanish explorers conquered the region, the Mayans became slaves in their own homeland. And they were still, in the 1980s, the underprivileged majority of Guatemalan's population. In the 70s, when the Mayans began participating in protests against the repressive government, demanding greater equality and inclusion of Mayan language and culture, the Guatemalan army, in 1980, institutes Operation Sofia. The program specifically targeted the Mayan population. Over three years, the army destroys 626 villages, displacing an additional 1.5 million, destroying buildings, destroying crops, slaughtering livestock, fouling water supplies, violating sacred places and cultural symbols. In 1983, four U.S. aid workers were killed. It was believed that that was a signal to the United States to not even engage in mild criticism of Guatemala's human rights record. Catholic priests and nuns also faced violence, as they supported the rights of the Mayan people. But for Reagan, Guatemala was a concern. When he first becomes president, Reagan sends Vernon Walters to meet the previous government, this is the government of Lucas before Montt, with a memo. The secretary has sent me here to see if we can work out a way to provide material assistance to your government. We have minimized negative public statements by U.S. officials on the situation in Guatemala we have arranged for the Commerce Department to take steps that would permit the sale of 3 million worth of military trucks and jeeps to the Guatemalan Army. As we are both aware, this has not been feasible because of our internal political and legal constraints relating to the use, by some elements of your security forces, of deliberate and indiscriminate killing of persons not involved with the guerrilla forces. If the government is prepared for assurances that they will take steps to halt government involvement in the indiscriminate killing of political opponents, The U.S. is prepared to offer military assistance. Millions of dollars in aid was sent. Helicopters, naval patrol boats, jeeps provided to the Guatemalan government to hunt the guerrillas. Here's what a CIA declassified memo says. The commanding officers of the units have been instructed to destroy all towns and villages which are cooperating with the guerrilla army of the poor, A CIA cable described an army massacre at Kokob in the Ixal Indian Territory. A CIA source reported that the social population appeared to fully support the guerrillas, and the soldiers were forced to fire at anything that moved. When an army patrol meets resistance and takes fire from a town or village, it is assumed that the entire town is hostile, and it is subsequently destroyed. When the army encountered an empty village, it was assumed to have been supporting the EGP, And it is destroyed. It was so bad that even some staunch anti-communists in the Reagan administration, one of them, Richard Childress, National Security aide, objected. Here's what he said. As we move ahead on our approach to Latin America, we need to consciously address the unique problems posed by Guatemala. Possessed of some of the worst human rights in the region, it presents a policy dilemma for us. The abysmal human rights records makes it, in its present form, unworthy of U.S. government support. Despite the facts on the ground, the annual State Department Human Rights Survey in 1982 praised the supposedly improved human rights situation in Guatemala. The overall conduct of the armed forces had improved by late in the year. Special Envoy Richard Stone visits Guatemala in 1983 and praised the positive changes in Rios Montt's government. In 1999, the Historical Clarification Commission estimated that the 34-year civil war in Guatemala had claimed the lives of some 200,000 people and the most savage bloodletting occurred during the 1980s. The panel estimated that the army was responsible for 93% of the killing, leftist guerrillas for the rest, 4% unresolved as to who caused them. During a 1999 visit to Central America, President Clinton apologized for the past support of right-wing regimes in Guatemala dating back to 1954.
2: Our goal in Nicaragua is simple: peace and democracy. Our policy is consistently supporting the efforts of those who seek democracy throughout Central America and who recognize that the freedom fighters are essential to that process.
0: It should have been a signal that something was wrong with the covert ops in Central America that the Reagan administration was engaging in when the administration heard from an old friend and not in a good way. That's an act of war. For the life of me, I don't see how we're going to explain it. The letter was from Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater, and he was condemning the discovery that three harbors in Nicaragua, Puerto Cortino, Puerto Sandino on the Pacific coast, and El Bluff on the Atlantic were mined. And it was carried out by Latin American commandos, but under CIA supervision, with the CIA calling the shots from a ship, at least in the Pacific ports, that was known. The president has asked us to back his foreign policy. How can we back his foreign policy when we don't know what the hell he's doing, he wrote to CIA Director William Casey. The mining was designed by the CIA to scare off shipping, to make it expensive for insurance companies. Indeed, the type of mines used were supposed to create a big light and flash, but not really do much damage. It was also expected that ships would just stop running the mines in the harbor and that this would help to undermine the Sandinista government that had taken over Nicaragua since 1979. But ships did continue to deliver cargo, and six, including a Soviet tanker, were damaged. Now, Goldwater was mostly upset that he wasn't informed. But when the news got out, there were many more voices of criticism to just he. Britain's Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, opposed the mining. It was very dangerous to international traffic on the high seas, she said. France also condemned it. Criticism on the Democratic side was expected. House Speaker Tip O'Neill I have contended that the Reagan administration's secret war against Nicaragua was morally wrong, but now we know it's also illegal. But it went beyond just the Democrats. Forty one Republicans in the Senate, including the Majority Leader, Howard Baker, joined in an overwhelming vote against the mining. Democratic presidential candidates, as we reached the 1984 election, pounced on the issue. If this pattern of irresponsibility and deception continues, I predict America could be involved in a full-scale war in Central America, Walter Mondale said. It was a return to the cowboy days of the CIA, Senator Gary Hart said. Jesse Jackson said Congress should consider whether the president was responsible for an impeachable offense. Ooh, the I word. But Reagan wasn't moved by the criticism or by Goldwater's letter. He writes back to the man that 20 years before he had supported in such a public way in his presidential election, and in his letter back to Goldwater, he informed him that, yes, you did, Senator, have several meetings with CIA Director William Casey, and you had been informed of the mining. Goldwater was unsure, and the reason was, CIA Director Casey had a habit of mumbling. The joke that uh, Schultz made is that he never needed to encrypt his phone calls. Though he might have said it in the meeting, and it might not have been heard. About the mining, Secretary Schultz said, We engaged in an effort that was better left alone, or left to the Contras, to fight themselves. It was a political disaster for the administration. Congressman Ed Boland was the chair of the House Intelligence Committee. He was outraged by the mining. He led a vote to condemn the mining in the House, and that would be followed later in 1984 by the Boland Amendment, forbidding U.S. aid to the Contra rebels, attempting to overthrow the Nicaraguan government, something that would have dire consequences for the Reagan administration in years. Covert ops would do a lot of damage to Reagan's legacy and America's image in the hemisphere, but its intentions were actually coming from a softer place, sort of. Reagan, conservative stalwart, defender of the military, wanting a military buildup in terms of missiles and equipment, did not want to send troops. He knew Americans, less than 10 years from the Vietnam withdrawal, did not want another Vietnam. This is always strong. It's still strong today. It was stronger, as a feeling, in the 1980s. The mobilization, the run-up for the Iraq War in 2003... It's just impossible to fathom that in 1983, even with the popularity that Reagan had. More than just public opinion, we think that Reagan himself didn't really want to send troops. And for instance, the end of his presidency, he's going to fight with his advisors who want him to send troops into Panama to go after Manuel Noriega, another Central American country where the U.S. is having problems in 1980. They have to wait for, and, and this is advocated by generals by members of his administration, but Reagan resists, and they'll have to wait for President George H.W. Bush to get into office for that to happen. But the harbor mining in reality caused damage to some boats and economic damage. It was, but was far from the most catastrophic event in the region south of Mexico and north of Colombia in the 1980s. Covert ops using Central American-based forces to do the bidding was the policy engaged in from the very beginning. A president doesn't pick the world situation. They get to inherit it from their predecessors, so it was with Reagan. In nineteen eighty one, there is evidence of an increase in Soviet influence around the world. You have to take yourself to this point a little bit because now it's history, but Soviet troops are on mobilized on the border of Poland. Soviets are in Afghanistan. They're involved along with the Cubans in Angola, various African countries. They're involved in Syria and the Middle East. Obviously the Soviet Union is supporting Cuba and has been. Has been for over 20 years. Nicaragua overthrew its dictator, Somoza. Now the Sandinistas are in power. And they receive a $160 million aid package from the Soviet Union. 200 MiG fighters were in Cuba, the largest air force in the Caribbean. Larger than the rest of the 33 nations combined had. Rebels in El Salvador were fighting with Cuban assistance, training and launching attacks in Nicaragua. From the first, so help me God, of January 20th, 1981, how Reagan handled the events was all his, and the President's first national security meeting found him engaged as he looked at the map, with a particular focus on two areas, the island nations of the Caribbean and the thin strip of land between Mexico and Colombia. The Caribbean is our third border, Secretary of State Al Haig had said. Haig was an old Nixon hand whose Selection was heavily influenced by that former president, contacting Reagan. Haig and some of Reagan's staff didn't always get along. He would depart early on in the administration. But on this point, Haig and Reagan were like minds. My own feeling, Reagan says, is that we are falling behind in establishing relations between the two Americas. We don't bring down governments in the name of human rights. None of them are as guilty of human rights violations as Cuba and the USSR. Cuba's t- causing trouble, sending advisors to Nicaragua and El Salvador, Higgs said. Reagan's questions at the meeting indicated his feeling. What can we do to pressure Cuba directly? Haig makes a comment here that was excised from the record, but it's likely that he suggested attacking Cuba directly. A comment he had made off the cuff in other situations. We think he says this because Defense Secretary Casper Weinberger then says, in a declassified part, the military action is risky because it involves checks and balances, limits from Congress, information that has to be provided at certain stages. Covert applications is the way to go. In Reagan's national security meetings, and he's looking at the Caribbean and looking at the map of Central America, human rights violations are not the top of the priority pile. Haig suggests to Reagan that El Salvador is a good test case for their policy of trying to block Cuba and the Soviet Union. Reagan concurs. It's a good starting point. A victory there would set a good example. Poland represents another situation inherited from Carter. Throughout the 1970s, dock workers and other workers in the communist Warsaw Pact nation are organizing for better wages and against increased food prices. Poland is also the most Catholic of the Soviet influenced countries, and the church is an element here in supporting fair treatment of workers, if not coming out directly against the government. Polish Pope installed in the Vatican in the 1970s, and John Paul visits Poland. When he does, union activity that has been going on throughout the decade comes to the forefront, and there are demonstrations in the streets. These groups begin to come together in one common front in 1980 under the name Solidarity. They lead strikes, and when they gain concessions from the government, they are granted official independent association status, and they elect leaders. They demand more. They have a charismatic leader in Lekwalenza. He plans a general strike effort. Soviet Union is watching these events. They send troops to the bordering countries and begin military exercises. Everyone's concerned by this. The Catholic Church begs Wilesa to call off the general strike. He does, although there are isolated events throughout 1980 and 1981. Moscow sends troops to the border, advisers to Warsaw. President Carter notifies the Allies, Britain, France, Western Germany, others, of his position, that the Polish people must resolve this situation for themselves. He informs Leonid Brezhnev that interference in Poland would lead to problems, not just with the Polish-U.S. relationship, but with the U.S.-USSR relationship. Now there's carrot and stick in Carter's approach. He also threatens arms sales to China. Reagan takes over. These tensions remain and all through a 1981 dicey situation in Poland. Solidarity now has 10 million members across the country. There's also a rural solidarity that forms among the farmers with 600,000 members. The union demands increase. They're asking for better wages. The main demand that they're asking for is a 40-day work week. I know that seems like something we take for granted, but that was one of the main issues in 1981. There's another problem, too. Within the Polish government, the Communist Party, there's a little revolution going on in there as well, and there are some insurgents who want to have a more liberalized economy and less influence from the Soviets. They're understandably concerned. Reagan sees opportunity. This could be the break in the red dike. He's watched with some disappointment as the United States backed down. In Hungary in 1956, in Czechoslovakia in 1968, the result of detente policies, doesn't want the U.S. to be passive this time. A range of options is considered, from blocking trade with the Polish government to blocking trade with the Soviet Union. Things come to a head in September 1981. Here, Solidarity invites other Warsaw Pact nations to form independent unions as well. And in October, it calls for elections in all towns and a tribunal to punish acts of violence against strikers going back to the 1950s. The Polish government passes an anti-strike law, and extends conscripts in the military that were set to be discharged, 46,000 of them, will be extended in the army. In October 1981, protesters are disrupted with tear gas. Solidarity announces a general strike, and the Polish government announces that they will have soldiers in villages throughout the country to ensure food distribution and transportation is not disrupted. Solidarity carries out a strike. It's a one-hour general strike, just kind of a Warning shot that they can do it on October 28th. The Soviet Union is concerned. Brezhnev is concerned. Point of view of the Reagan administration, Hague, is that Soviets don't want to intervene. And that perhaps the best outcome for everyone here is that the Polish government takes care of this. And it's resolved within Poland without Soviet interference. On December 13th, 1981, the Polish government on un- former General Jaroszelski declares martial law. 6,000 Solidarity members are arrested. Lech Walesa is detained. Him and hundreds of others are charged with treason. And the Union is once again banned. Reagan looks at everything from sanctions, recalling the Polish ambassador back to the United States, closing the embassy, to sanctions against the Soviet Union, All of them have downsides. Severe economic sanctions against the Polish government are also going to hurt the Polish people. He doesn't want to disrupt some of the progress being made in arms negotiation or cancel any of the IMF talks. He decides to speak out forcefully to put moral pressure on Poland. And in that, he has a great ally. Shortly after Polish security forces moved into the streets, Reagan called the Pope. He sends Ambassador-at-Large Vernon Walters busy man during this part of the Reagan administration, to meet with John Paul II. Walters arrives in Rome, meets with the Pope. Both sides agree that they must keep solidarity alive, that the Soviets must become the focus of an international campaign of isolation, and that the Pope has advised like Lech Walesa through church channels to keep the movement operating underground, to pass the word to Solidarity's 10 million members, not to go back into the streets, don't provoke Warsaw Pact intervention, Soviet intervention. Don't provoke civil war, but keep the flame alive. The Polish government has cut the communications between the Polish church and the Vatican. They have some radio contact. According to Al Haig, in this crisis, the Vatican's information was absolutely better and quicker than our own in every respect. Republican Congressman Henry Hyde was a member of the House Intelligence Committee during this time, was appraised of some of the covert actions going on in Poland. In Poland, we did all the things that were done in countries where you wanted to stabilize a communist government and strengthen resistance to that. We provided the supplies and technical assistance in terms of clandestine newspapers, broadcasting, propaganda, money, organizational help and advice. Here's what Carl Bernstein, who wrote an article in Time about this whole topic, said. Uh, William Casey, who has been vilified for aspects of his tenure as CIA chief, In other areas, cannot be criticized with his instincts on Poland. In almost every city and town, underground newspapers and mimeographed bulletins appeared, challenging the state-controlled media. The church published its own newspapers. Solidarity Emissives photocopied and mimeographed on American-supplied equipment were tacked to church bulletin boards. Stenciled posters were boldly posted on police stations and government buildings, and even on entrances to the state-controlled television center. Where the Army officers broadcast the news. Meanwhile, another group comes to place. So you have the Catholic Church, you have the CIA, you have Reagan making new statements, and the labor movement in the United States, the AFL CIO. Lane Kirkland consulted frequently with members of the Reagan administration and how and when to move goods and supplies into Poland. Much of the equipment destined for Solidarity arrived in Poland by ship, often packed in mismarked containers sent from Denmark and Sweden, then unloaded to Gdansk and other ports by dockers secretly working with Solidarity.
2: We tried to meet their re- specific requests, what they asked us for, and those uh, requirements were conveyed to us through a uh, variety of channels. They wanted communications equipped of various kinds offset printing presses, radio equipment, things
0: of that sort. According to administration officials, the socialist government of Sweden and Swedish labor unions played a critical role in arranging the transshipments of goods to Poland. From the Polish docks, equipment moved to its destination in trucks and private cars driven by Solidarity sympathizers, who often used churches and priests as their point of contact for deliveries and pickup. By 1985... There were more than 400 underground periodicals appearing in Poland, some with a circulation that exceeded 30,000. Books and pamphlets challenging the authority of the communist government were printed by the thousands. Comic books for children recast Polish fables and legends. With Jaralewski pictured as a villain, communism as the red dragon, and Walesa as the heroic knight. In church basements and homes, millions of viewers watched documentary videos produced and screened on equipment smuggled into the country. With clandestine broadcasting equipment supplied by the CIA and the AFL-CIO, Solidarity regularly broke into the government's radio programming, often with the message, Solidarity Lives, or Resist. There was a great moment at the halftime of the National Soccer Championship. Just as the whistle sounded for the half, a Solidarity Lives banner went up on the screen, and a tape came on calling for resistance. You have in Poland the most positive story and all of the things that might be looked at poorly in history when used elsewhere, covert operations and propaganda and trying to overturn governments. In Poland, it's a good story. And Reagan and his administration deserve the credit that they get for helping to change the situation on the ground because it does, over time, get better. Carl Bernstein again. Step by reluctant step. The Soviets and the communist government of Poland bowed to the moral, economic, and political pressure imposed by the Pope and President. Jails were emptied. Willis' trial on charges of slandering state officials was abandoned. The Polish Communist Party turned fratricidal, and the country's economy collapsed in a haze of strikes and demonstrations. In 1987, after Warsaw pledged to open a dialogue with the church, Reagan lifted U.S. sanctions. Four months later, Pope John Paul was cheered by millions of Polish countrymen as he traveled across Poland demanding human rights and praising Solidarity. By 1988, Gorbachev visits Warsaw and signals Moscow's recognition that the government could not rule without Solidarity's cooperation. Reagan's biggest contribution, as in many areas of his presidency, was his own voice. And this time, that voice came from a very personal place.
2: Romuald Spasowski, the distinguished former Polish ambassador who has sought asylum in our country in protest to the suppression of his native land. He told me that one of the ways the Polish people have demonstrated their solidarity in the face of martial law is by placing lighted candles in their windows to show that the light of liberty still glows in their hearts. Ambassador Spasowski requested that on Christmas Eve, a lighted candle, will burn in the White House window as a small but certain beacon of our solidarity with the Polish people. I urge all of you to do the same
0: tomorrow night. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: El Salvador. Its primeval beauty is alluring but deceptive. Throughout this land of lakes and volcanoes, a civil war has been raging since 1980, claiming the lives of more than 40,000 people. The guerrillas control 200 square miles of rich farmland surrounding the Wasapa volcano. All of this land belonged to one family.
0: Yet, for El Salvador, no candles were lit. Martin narrated this video. Taken by filmmakers literally under live fire.
2: Now the guerrillas have taken over this area and have organized agricultural collectives, schools, and clinics for the 10,000 people who live here.
0: El Salvador is a nation the size of New Jersey. Power is held strongly by an elite group in the capital using the military and paramilitary death squads. Yet, as Reagan is taking office, the government in El Salvador is under attack from FMLN guerrillas, a united effort of separate forces that have been fighting each other in the 70s that were now combined And before Reagan even becomes president, they launch their strongest offensive. And Carter is president. He's supporting the government of El Salvador, even though it's run by the right-wing arena party. He's providing aid. Because of some human rights abuses, including the killing of four U.S. church women, he suspends that aid. But now as the offensive begins, Carter restores it. So Reagan's policy, at least initially, is inherited in in El Salvador, not in Guatemala and other places, but in El Salvador, is inherited from the Carter administration. They do not want another Nicaragua. There's a reason that the guerrilla offensive fails in 1981. And that's because while they can control the countryside and do control the countryside and have administrative units actually running the country in most places, there's something they can't do. Bring the attack to the capital. They're hoping for a massive general strike that will coordinate along with the guerrilla attack. All the workers will stop working and shut the country down. Well, they've run into a problem. And that is that every time there's a rally or a protest in El Salvador, The machine guns come out. Any person who's an activist, a labor activist, that would be available to lead a general strike has been either killed or terrified. When Reagan takes office, Carter's ambassador to El Salvador is Robert White. He's trying as he can in the country to maintain a political center between the rightists and between the Marxist guerrillas. This gets harder to do. When he talks to military leaders, the guerrillas mortar the U.S. embassy in El Salvador. When he tries to meet with labor leaders and seek their help in forming a centrist government, power military forces, the death squads, simply kill them. White starts sending cables to the State Department criticizing the El Salvadorian government. The government has some friends in Washington, and White is criticized for this in El Salvador he and his wife are actually threatened one of their security people says your neighbors would like to have you killed but the gravest incident of all is when white dines with two us church women these are Mary and all sisters they go the next day after dining with the ambassador to meet two others in the airport they're captured and the four are raped and killed this incident causes outrage one of the first things that Reagan does through Al Haig is fire Ambassador White. When White goes to Congress, when he criticizes the U.S. role in El Salvador, when he's critical of the fact that the U.S. is supporting the storyline of the government, that the church women were murdered by renegade soldiers and not ordered by the government, when there's evidence of the opposite, he's removed from civil service altogether. It's in a small central town of El Mozote where the town citizens, fundamentalist Christian people who are living in the jungle, and they're trying as best they can to stay at least neutral. They don't want to support the guerrillas. They don't want to be hurt by them. They don't want to be seen as overtly supporting the army either. The town citizens are told to gather in the square. If you gather in the square, as the army comes through, they can pass through and they'll know that you're not helping the guerrillas. Instead, something very different happened pieced together by the few survivors, and later in court cases, by a few soldiers who participated. Over the course of three days in January 1981, after the army forces had lost a battle to the guerrillas, approximately 1,000 people, almost the entire population, were tortured, slaughtered. First the men, They're yelling at the men, they're saying, show me where your pistols are, show me how you're helping the guerrillas, but they really have very little patience, and and women, and then 146 children, ranging in age, from three days to 14 years, were brutally murdered. There's a few comments, because you do have a survivor who's hiding under a tree, you have another one who runs to the hill, you have a, a boy who heard things, but wasn't uh, was kept out of the village that day that there were some comments you know we, we i don't really want to kill children and, and this from the soldiers and they were absolutely ordered from above that it was to send a message to other villagers to put them in absolute fear of cooperating in any way with the guerrillas el Mazzotti was part of a new campaign and in spanish the saying was sacar al peste del agua to remove the fish from the water A monument to the victims now stands in the town plaza. A garden with bright flowers and colorful murals has been dedicated to the 146 children. There was never justice for the El Mazzotti killings, but there was a kind of rough street justice, the kind that you might expect in a civil war between guerrillas and government. In 1984, the FMLN blew up Domingo Monterres's helicopter in revenge for the El Mesoti attacks. He was known as the leader of the army at that time. Said a RAND Corporation analyst working for the Defense Depart- Department, a former U.S. military attache to El Salvador recalled to me that in the middle of one of his many marches to the Salvador High Command on the need to stop death squad killings, a high-ranking officer retorted in a dismissive tone that talk about respect for human rights was a luxury the United States could afford only because of the cold deficiency of the death squads. We cleaned up San Salvador for you. Rallies gunned down, leaders of peaceful protest, labor groups, students killed, villages destroyed. Catholic Archbishop Oscar Romero was killed in cold blood in March 1980 while he was saying mass in the National Cathedral. George Shultz, the uh, second secretary of state of the Reagan administration, summed up the situation in Central America thusly. The governments of El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala contained and tolerated many unsavory. Still, people in the government were engaging in a stalwart effort towards democracy. The American left would have us leave these governments and not worry about communists. The American right would have us support the anti-communists, no matter how outrageous their behavior Now, there's a lot of excitement when, in 1984, Joseph Napoleon Duarte is elected president of El Salvador. George Shultz is going to talk about how the brave citizens of El Salvador voted despite intimidation from guerrillas. Reagan's going to say the same thing. What a great moment it was. The CIA had actually financed Duarte's campaign, and it was the person the U.S. wanted to see win. Born-again Christian, he impresses Washington talking about justice on his visit there's some thought that maybe there'll be a better record. He does put through an apparatus to control the security forces and a land reform program. In reality, the same group controls the officer corps. Not that much change in the violence. Indeed, in 1984, in Cabanas, 80 unarmed civilians are killed by the army. One month later, another massacre. 50 displaced people in the Chatalango province are killed. The land reform program does require property owners to give up land so that it can be distributed. goes to soldiers first, and the owners are allowed to keep the best lands. They're allowed to keep their equipment and livestock, and the rest of the land is not given to ordinary people. It's simply turned into cooperative farms. Many of the people working on these farms feel the same way they did before. The former landowners initially continued to derive income from production on the cooperatives as part of the cooperatives' profit went to an agrarian reform fund, which the former owners were to be compensated from. Now, Mike Allison of the University of Pennsylvania, Scranton, writing on Al Jazeera, talks about the other side to this equation. It's true, he says, the majority of human rights violations were committed by the government and security forces. But the FMLN's use of violence has been insufficiently studied. The guerrillas definitely carried out kidnappings, bombings, bank robberies during the 1970s to support their revolutionary dreams. My impression is most academics are sympathetic to the FMLN, and they have not been studied enough. They are responsible for killing at least 11 mayors in El Salvador. Here's what the Truth Commission... Uh, at the end of the uh, Civil War said about the FMLN's role. The FMLN popularized a logic of violence that led to political opponents to be defined as enemies. If there's a legacy to American policy in Central America, it is the millions of displaced residents in the countries in which the United States intervened. El Salvador sends more people to the U.S. between this period of Reagan's administration and 2010 that you would think of a country of 5 or 6 million guatemala too honduras others this was not incompatible with reagan's feelings on immigration which today look very moderate he offered an amnesty program for immigrants that were in the united states but it's common to think of immigration as a vacuum but the reagan administration's position on this issue was not just something that came out of ideology or politics but it was also connected to their policy choices and the refugees that were stemming from this area. Colin Dweck, George Mason University professor, talks about Reagan's foreign policy to be one of pressure on the Soviet Union. He said that in the 1970s, Reagan's policy, we win, they lose. Everything that could be done to pressure the Soviets to agree to arms limitations favorable to the United States would be done. He forced Soviet leaders to make difficult choices by pressuring them across the board. Well, part of that board was Nicaragua. El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras. He and most of the team thought that the U.S. was following rules that Moscow and Havana was not, and intervention was a one-way street until his administration. Certainly the Nicaraguan government and the FMLN rebels in El Salvador went around collecting arms from socialist countries and accepted training help. However, the release of Soviet documents and those of some of the resistance fighters since this time do indicate that there was very limited direct Soviet involvement in the region. Central America was problematic for the USSR as for the most part Moscow was in observing sphere of influence zones. I mean one of the things that they felt is that if the USSR got involved, sent Soviet troops to say Nicaragua or El Salvador, the US would probably be invading soon. This is what they thought was going to happen. And this would be getting Soviet troops and thus getting involved would be a problem. They refused an offer that Daniel Ortega and Nicaragua made for bases. Too much commitment. They already had influence in Cuba. That being said, they were happy to allow the United States to get involved and mired in this region as they were getting involved and mired in Afghanistan. And we don't know what might have happened in terms of Soviet involvement, how they might have changed their strategy if a communist nation took over in El Salvador. Just because they didn't get involved in the current situation, despite Reagan's visions, doesn't mean that they would not have if the situation changed. Similar to the Afghanistan situation. It may have been involved, you know, it may have involved now, as it's known, that the Soviets got involved to honor Brezhnev's commitment to a slain leader and not really to establish a forward base, even though that's what the U.S. thought. It doesn't mean that they couldn't have done it couldn't have been seeking to do that as the situation changed there either. Same here in Central America. There's another point to make, back to what Colin Dweck says. For instance, Reagan's pressure politics. Absolutely no quarter allowed anywhere may be helped along the Cold War's end. You know, would you have that if a communist nation was, another communist nation was established in the Western Hemisphere? Reagan thought that it was directly related. One of the things he's going to say is if they don't win in El Salvador, how are they going to win in Geneva You know, at the summits? Same logic Eisenhower, Kennedy used in the 60s. Show weakness anywhere and the Soviets will be in Berlin. Yet for a good number of Americans, it's not the 1960s anymore. The nation had moved beyond the sim- simplistic domino theory and Ronald Reagan's Central American gambit, ignoring hundreds of thousands of killings to eliminate one small extra piece is absolutely uh, uh, of the Cold War plan is absolutely in a sparsely populated poss- area. In countries that had more than twenty million, seventy five thousand people possibly that could be armed. It was always debated Central America during the eighties. There were protests from the National Council of Churches, Democrats opposed it in Congress. There were protesters at Elliott Abrams House and other officials. Chris Dodd responded to Reagan's Central American speech, talking about death squads in El Salvador, the media focused on human rights. It wasn't all hidden, though much of the real story didn't come out until the 1990s. But I think you have that other side there. Did it add to the Cold War win on one hand? And if it did, wasn't it right to do absolutely everything to keep the game up? And on the other hand, Central America is one of those topics that's just absolutely horrific for most Americans to think about, and for most opponents of Reagan, it's one of the bitter legacies. The president hated disharmony and didn't want to hear about it. Conflict involved personalities. Reagan was some kind of remote king, absent from those debates. Gene Kirkpatrick, Ambassador to the United Nations, Reagan Administration. The series is entitled A Dozen Ronald Reagans, and the promise of what I'm doing here is to uncover how many different aspects that there are of Ronald Reagan and perceptions of him with varying degrees of likely accuracy. One of these perceptions is what I call the distant delegator, that Reagan at best simply trusted his lieutenants and let them go, that it was a kind of phone it in or set it and forget it presidency. He was delegating and not involved. Especially given his experience being as a movie actor, a TV personality, it's led to a perception that he wasn't making decisions. Certainly, there's ample evidence that Reagan was not on the surface a detailed man. Bobby Inman an early deputy national security aide, noted how he nod in meetings, even when there was no one saying anything to agree to. James Baker, first chief of staff, talked about how after a Group 7 summit, Baker drops off a briefing book, and the next day, it's on the same spot on the table, untouched. Sorry, Jim. Sound of music was on last night, Reagan said. Tip O'Neill. Arrived for a meeting at the White House at seven and was shocked to hear that the president wasn't up yet. Reagan's sleeping led to jokes about his burning the midday oil. It was a guesswork presidency, said Don Reagan. As Treasury Secretary, I was never told what was expected of me. Al Haig similarly badmouthed the management of the Reagan administration. No description of duties, no roles, no other result but confusion. When George Shultz, who succeeded Haig, and Caspar Weinberger, their defense secretary, fought, as they did over many issues, Reagan asked them to settle it among themselves. That Reagan kept people at a distance, personally and professionally, is a well-documented fact. And a story known by family members, among many others. One need look no further than Nancy Reagan, the person that he was closest with. Here's what she said. There's a wall around him. He lets me closer than anyone else. But there are times when I feel the barrier. His son, Michael, recalls how his father didn't even recognize him at his graduation from college. It's easier for dad to talk to thousands than one person. Staff were employees, nothing more, according to biographer Lou Cannon. Said one campaign aide, John Sears came from his Hollywood background. See, there, the star is always the star, even if surrounded by a lot of important people who are making decisions around them. Richard Pipes, security aide, about his first national security meeting said he was totally lost once he was presented with two sets of competing information. James Baker again said, Reagan's foreign policy was a witch's brew of intrigue. Martin Anderson, he made decisions like a Turkish pasha passively letting his subjects serve him. From William Bunch's tear down this myth comes a critical view. The fact was, it was widely regarded through all the Reagan years, from start to end, that the commander-in-chief was remarkably disengaged, even uninterested, when it came to foreign policy. Yet, on the other hand, there's definitely evidence that Reagan, once focused on something, spent a lot of time on it. By all accounts, Reagan was a reader. He spent an inordinate amount of time with his pre-inauguration staffing decisions. He read religiously, campaign manager Ed Rollins said. If you gave him four hours to read, he'd spend the four hours doing it, and there'd be notes on page 40. Michael Deaver said, he craved reading. I watched him devour countless books, white papers, position papers, memos, and biographies. Indeed, according to Mike Priest's recently published The President's Book of Secrets, and by the way, I encourage you to get that one. It's on Amazon.com. Priest is a listener to the show. This is a history of the President's Daily Briefing provided by the CIA to presidents and how each president reacted. Despite conventional wisdom that Reagan did not read a lot of anything, much less serious material such as current intelligence, he took his PDPs and accompanying intelligence reading quite seriously. His first four national security advisors, Dick Allen, William Clark, Bud McFarlane, and John Poindexter, each insisted that he read with diligence not only the PDB, but also other national security papers they put in front of him. CIA historian Nicholas Dujmovic reviewed the first 1,000 or so of Reagan's PDBs which, like all previous PDVs, the CIA keeps in secure classified storage, covering almost half the Reagan presidency. He found markings or notations in the president's hand on about 10% of the copies. The president's notes included everything from simple marks of interest, checks, underlined words, brackets, double brackets, to questions and full sentences. Of course... This is all a double-edged sword now, isn't it? If we do accept that behind the image of Reagan of kind of distant delegator giving other people things to do and merely trusting his subordinates without direction, that might exclude blame for anything that went wrong or is distasteful to people in the 1980s or us now. Colin Deweck, professor from George Mason University, said the following... All presidents delegate to an extent, but with Reagan, it was extreme. We shouldn't pretend that this was a positive quality. However, he points out, Reagan, more than other presidents, made his overall policy goals, his strong anti-communist message clear, which helps subordinates to know what to do. Indeed, when we examine another not well-known aspect of the Reagan administration's foreign policy, and that's Lebanon, you'll see a commander-in-chief both trusting a subordinate to a large degree, hesitant to go against someone who's more involved in a situation than he, but also willing to go a bit out on the limb where some of his advisors did not want to go. 1983, Beirut, Lebanon. And a group of French power troopers are standing on a balcony of their barracks. They are peacemakers sent as part of a multinational mission. And on October 28th, they look across the airport and they see a flare, orange and yellow, the American headquarters. Gosh, what is going on? When... An explosion in their own barracks rocks them as well. A yellow truck normally used to deliver water to soldiers, American Marines, part of a peacekeeping mission in Beirut, sped towards the Marine barracks at too fast a speed to be delivering water. But the guards were under instructions of the rules of engagement in place that they could not stop any vehicle with force. By the time they had loaded, and shouldered their weapons. The weapons weren't allowed to be loaded. The truck smashed into the compound with the equivalent of 12,000 pounds of dynamite. 220 Marines, 18 sailors, three Army soldiers, and an elderly Lebanese custodian died. 60 more were wounded. It was the worst single-day loss for the U.S. Marine Corps since World War II. Those who study the Reagan administration know about Lebanon. We know it's a terrible event. Sometimes it's used as, well, this was something that Reagan got in and got out of. So it's used as a kind of ruler as to the commitment of Reagan in terms of the use of the military. But it's certainly a group of events that would lead Reagan to send American troops to Lebanon. Lebanon, although in the Middle East, where Muslims were the majority, had a large Christian population. These are the Maronite Catholics. 1932, they were the majority of Lebanon, and they wrote the Constitution. So they would always have a majority in the legislative branch, and pretty much always have the presidency. And although by the 60s this had changed, Muslims were now the majority of people in Lebanon, the rules were kept the same. It was a volatile situation, and by 1975, civil war breaks out in Lebanon. Now, the gunfire in a distant land should not have been enough to trigger the attention of the United States, but this was the Middle East. Certainly, Lebanon is not figuring in at all into the campaign of 1980 or the speeches of a governor, Ronald Reagan, running for the presidency, mostly concerned with the Soviet Union, hostages in Iran. By 1982, 100,000 people had died. Still, these deaths wouldn't trigger U.S. attention to put Lebanon on the radar. In nineteen eighty one, Syria got concerned that Christian forces under Bashir Jemel came a little bit too close to the border, and Syrian forces got involved and bombed the town of Zael on the Syrian border. This nation, the size of Connecticut, its vacant lot in the Middle East, was now troubling its neighbors. Israel got concerned that there would be another hostile country on its borders of Syria got involved. Now with Israel and Syria both firing, this got the attention now of the Reagan administration. He sends Philip Habib, a veteran of the State Department in the Middle East, to negotiate a ceasefire. Habib got it. And in doing so, earned the respect of President Reagan. But Syria and Israel were not the only problem. Now the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, or Yasser Arafat, gets involved. They begin attacks in Galilee, where Israeli citizens are living, Israel now claims causes bel and enters Lebanon to make war with the Palestine Liberation Organization. This puts Reagan in a predicament. President Reagan had been a supporter of Israel, you know, since he was a liberal Democrat for human rights reasons. He was a conservative Republican. He felt Israel was important to support as it was critical to U.S. security now. This situation was a little different and ran into some other concerns with the Reagan administration. I mean, the images of the raid played badly on TV. The PLO headquarters may have been hit, but so were civilians. And the pictures of bodies being pulled from the rubble didn't look good on TV for a president that was ultimately concerned with how things looked on TV. Reagan sends Habib to negotiate an Israeli PLO ceasefire now. This is a bit tougher and required support from Saudi Arabia. But Habib gets it done temporarily and again earns the gratitude of President Reagan for a diplomatic job well done. For about a year, there's a ceasefire in effect. Lebanon would be cool and off American radar. Relations between Israel and the Reagan administration, despite his ideological support for Israel, would be difficult, though. When American companies sought to sell AWAC aircrafts, this was a special, powerful surveillance aircraft to Saudi Arabia, the Prime Minister of Israel, Menachem Begin, opposed it. Begin came to Washington, met with Reagan, and discussing the point with Reagan said he would go no further. He wouldn't make any public statement. At least that's what the Reagan aides said. Then he goes to the Capitol, lobbies congressmen, and goes on American TV with a statement against the AWACS sale. Reagan wasn't happy. His personal credibility was on the line. Wouldn't allow this nation to tell America what to do, even a nation like Israel that we supported. Some are not sure if Reagan didn't make this TV speech, if Reagan would have got involved in it. Then Israel annexes the Golan Heights. This is an area they had won in the 1967 Six-Day War now they annex it. And pushing this through after tensions were supposed to be soothed and momentum towards peace after the Camp David Accords was a belligerent step to many eyes. Caspar Weinberger, Reagan's Secretary of Defense, pushed Reagan to cancel $300 million in defense contracts with Israel. Begin didn't like this. Calls in the U.S. ambassador, tells him, we're not a vassal state. We're not a banana republic. We won't be pushed around. So things weren't always so warm between Israel and the United States during the Reagan administration. June 2nd, 1982, the Israeli ambassador to Great Britain is killed by Arab terrorists. In retaliation, Israel blows up a sports stadium in Beirut. The PLO escalates and begins attacking Galilee, and this is where Israel, while Reagan was away at an economic summit in Vienna, tells Secretary of State Haig that they were invading Lebanon and did so. They told Haig it would only be a few days. Boy, this guy makes it hard to be your friend, Reagan would later say to aides of Menachem Bacon. Under Ariel Sharon, Israel's forces would destroy Syrian air power and its surface-to-air missiles in Lebanon. The Israeli defense forces would then march to Beirut. Reagan asked for a truce. Begin gave him two days. But in the meantime, the idea of surrounding Beirut to prevent supplies and more fighters from coming in to help the PLO fighters that were there became attractive reports that there were some 500,000 civilians living in the western part of Beirut, the Muslim side, and about 20,000 PLO fighters came in. Israel's goals, as stated, were to capture eliminate in one way or another the fighters. But then they began bombing East Beirut. And the images of the bombing were captured on American TV. Menachem Begin was summoned, ordered really, to the White House. Not the friendliest of visits. Mad about the AWIC sale and Begin's lobbying. Reagan was not warm. He read the U.S. position from an index card. You're a world leader, and you're getting read to by Reagan on one of his index cards? Yeah, that's trouble. There was no small talk. The invasion was raising tensions, and Israel needed to think seriously about it. Begin said it's not an invasion. Israel's was not secret territory, but they would not leave until the Syrians and Iranians did. There's a press conference. Reagan and Begin get out. He, he was considering letting Begin walk out alone for her, and he regretted later that he didn't just do that. Begin uses the moment of the press conference to imply that America's supporting Israel's invasion. He calls Reagan, my friend, innocent enough. He said the discussion was fruitful where clearly it hadn't been. And he stated his view that the Israeli war effort wasn't an invasion. Israel sought no territory. The TV image of the two together, Begin and Reagan, implied support. Headlines would say the next day, Reagan backs Israel. When a few days later, massive bombardment of Beirut would begin, it looked like the U.S. supported the effort. They did not. They condemned it. But the State Department press releases on the matter rank hollow next to the two leaders standing together. Reagan sends in Philip Habib again, his man, to cool off the tension, stop the fighting, get the images off TV. It was here in a panicked moment, here in the moment's Of a low-level diplomat, the U.S. forces were proposed. It wasn't Reagan, it wasn't the State Department, it wasn't the Defense Secretary. It was Philip Habib, at first. Israel wanted the PLO fighters out of Beirut and out of Lebanon, away from the Israeli border. They could get them out themselves, or eliminate them themselves using their IDF forces, which had surrounded the city. Or they could allow a trusted ally to do it. They could even accept the Syrians taking the PLO fighters away to Syria but they had to be out of this Connecticut-sized country on Israel's borders. That was their position. So in order to get the ceasefire that Habib wanted, there had to be some neutral party enforcing. Habib agreed to a small U.S. force. And of course, since Habib couldn't really agree to that, he got the commander-in-chief Reagan to agree in principle. This shows you a bit about Reagan's leadership style. You know, he trusted Habib, Habib had had a couple successes, and he gave his subordinates some leeway here. Didn't like going against them when they had something, you know, in mid-action. But Reagan was out a bit of a limb with his envoy. Casper Weinberger, defense secretary, didn't like this plan. The Joint Chiefs didn't like it, felt it was unwise. Reagan thought he might be able to negotiate a final deal, maybe not send troops at all, so he agrees in principle. This is where Israeli newspapers leak the story now and the U.S. participation. Leaking it, they felt, might turn American opinion against the peacekeeping effort and kill the plan. Sending American troops in a post-Vietnam world, not a popular thing. They had miscalculated if that was what they intended to get from Reagan. Had the opposite effect. America was now committed. Reagan was outed. And other people moved on the plan as well once it was public. France offers to help. They have a colonial legacy in this country. Newspaper editorials supported Reagan's move. And probably just as convincing as all of these things, the Soviet Union came out against it. But despite all this, the plan was still just in a talking phase until the fall of 1982. It's then, in August, that Israel resumes bombing. Public opinion would turn against Israel in the world. It would be one of the lowest moments for world opinion of Israel. And public opinion was also turning against the invasion in Israel itself, where 300,000 people marched through Tel Aviv to protest it. It was at this moment, the bombing on the TV each night, that Michael Deaver, again, one of these key Reagan aides, really was most trusted, marched into the Oval Office and said, I can't be part of this. You're the only person in the world who can stop the bombing. Deaver says to Reagan. You must call Begin. Deaver's advice mattered to Reagan, and he immediately responded. Get Begin on the phone. Deaver wasn't alone in his feelings. Secretary of State Schultz, new secretary appointed after the resignation of Alexander Haig, agreed as well. Then what followed is a tense phone call between Reagan and the Prime Minister. Menachem, Reagan said, this is a holocaust. It must stop. Begin responds angrily at that. I know very well what a holocaust is, he says. But he also got the message. Reagan was mad; he wasn't fooling around. Twenty minutes later, Prime Minister of Israel comes back on the line. Said he ordered a ceasefire and removed Sharon from command. Now there's a price to this ceasefire. A multinational force would be needed. Someone would have to enforce the ceasefire. And so, 800 U.S. Marines and 350 French paratroopers flew to Beirut. Very tense situation. Hundreds of Marines. Between 30,000 Israeli defense forces, at least 15,000 Syrian and PLO fighters, keeping the peace between these two hostile forces was not easy. Particularly when one of these hostile forces at the time was Israel, despite being our ally, despite our support for Israel. There were incidents of harassment of U.S. soldiers. There were a few times American troops were even fired on. A lot of trouble clearing Israeli mines. Mines that were delivered to Israel by the U.S. and then supposed to be for their defense and not to be used in Lebanon soldiers had to end up removing them. The multinational force was cramping the style of the Israelis. They were used to walking around West Peru as they saw fit. Now Americans and the French had to stop them from doing so, restrict their
1: movement. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. shop for financial products and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: You know, when you look at what's happened since then, and how a particular Republican president's approach to policy just seems so unlike it seems so like kind of wonky kind of a nation-building type approach, a U.N. type approach. Not usually what the Americans engage in. Seems like a flawed plan. Yet, you know, it works to a degree. The fighting in Beirut stops. In fact, it looks like a masterstroke for President Reagan. He sought to cement it by proposing now a broader peace plan, building on what President Garter's Camp David Accord had achieved. Providing for Palestinian citizenship providing for Israel to give up the 1967 war gains and brokering peace through King Hussein of Jordan. Israel's not pleased with this, but in Lebanon, at least, with a multinational force in place, they get what they wanted. Bashir Jemiel, the Christian leader, friendly to Israel, is installed as president. Yet this is still one of the first major U.S. military operations since Vietnam, and public opinion is touchy. The Defense Department, again, Joint Chiefs wary, They wanted to end it, and end it on a 30-day timetable. After proposing the peace plan, Reagan orders Marines that are on the ground back to ships. It happens so quick that it surprises the French. They make plans to withdraw. Reagan's a powerful leader. He's a popular president. He's still hesitant to go against that overriding American opinion and use force here. keeping it cool. Now, the reason for what happened next is debated. Was it a result of the Marine withdrawal or not? Secretary of State Schultz and Philip Habib opposed that withdrawal of the Marines. Caspar Weinberger, Defense Secretary, was for it. Whether one event led to another or not, Bashir Jebel was assassinated in a bombing of his party headquarters. There was now complete and total anarchy in the country Israel again enters Lebanon and quickly reaches Beirut, surrounding the western side of the city. For 60 hours, the Christian militia, fresh off the assassination of their leader, is mysteriously allowed in, but they're blocking anyone else from coming in. Ostensibly to find PLO fighters, but in the end they killed 700 people in an unchecked massacre. When Begin spoke at a UN conference, two-thirds of the delegates walk out. The Reagan administration sought to stop this fighting. In order to do it, A new multinational force was needed, this one, for a longer stay, and now 1,500 American soldiers. The new multinational force has some success. Jamial's brother is installed by the Christian majority in the assembly. The Lebanese army is established, led by Christians, but with some Muslim participation. In an event that would be difficult to imagine happening today, U.S. Marines were cheered as they enter Beirut. These Americans and French were their only hope, perhaps. Reagan saw Lebanon as the new milestone. America, he said, was back. We closed the book on a long, dark period of failure and self-doubt and set a new course. From fall 82 to spring 83, at least in terms of Lebanon being on American radar. But gradually, the new government was seen by Muslims as a puppet state for Israel. Americans came to be to supporting the status quo. In May, our embassy in Beirut was bombed. Though there was a ceasefire between Syrians, the Israelis, the PLO, and the Christian militias, there was one group that formed called the National Salvation Front, composed of various radical Muslim groups, even a few radical Christian groups, who did not support the Jameel government. They decided they had nothing to do with this peace agreement. They would attack Lebanese army forces and the multinational force. This is a dilemma for peacekeepers. What do you do if a group declares war on you? This is one of America's early peacekeeping operations, and so the rules were not all that clear. The soldiers in the multinational force, Italian, French, and U.S., had index cars, which gave them instructions. Their weapons were not to be loaded unless hostile force was a threat. In Washington, Weinberger asked Reagan for permission to use the Navy's artillery against this new group, the National Salvation Front, in their positions, in order to assist the illegitimate government in the Lebanese army in training control of the country. Navy artillery was used in a battle where the Lebanese army forces had pin, been pinned down by the National Salvation Front, which changed the tide of the battle and gave confidence to the Lebanese army. Now the Marines began training the Lebanese army. But in doing all of this, it seemed like the right way to go, try to get the Americans out, try to Lebanize the conflict. Our neutrality is compromised. When a key Muslim leader called for Muslims participating in the government to leave and for soldiers in the Lebanese army to leave or be attacked, many did, leaving the government and Lebanese army as mostly a Christian enterprise, with the U.S. supporting it. Congressional support waning. Tip O'Neill, Democratic Speaker of the House, had provided bipartisan cover to the Reagan administration, and would refuse to criticize Lebanon until all troops were home. But other congressmen and senators began raising questions. Reagan became defensive. Our interests are at stake in Lebanon, he would say at the Beirut National Airport, where American forces were stationed. Over 2,000 passengers a week were now coming into Beirut. The country perhaps could get back on its feet. Maybe, maybe. And then, October 28, 1983, that yellow truck speeds towards the Marine barracks and kills any chance of peace.
2: May I share something with you I think you'd like to know? It's something that happened to the commandant of our Marine Corps, General Paul Kelly. While he was visiting our critically injured Marines at in an Air Force hospital, it says more than any of us could ever hope to say about the gallantry and heroism of these young men. Young men who serve so willingly so that others might have a chance at peace and freedom in their own lives and in the life of their country. I'll let General Kelly's words describe the incident. He spoke of a, quote, young Marine with more tubes going in and out of his body than I have ever seen in one body. He couldn't see very well. He reached up and grabbed my four stars just to make sure I was who I said I was. He held my hand with a firm grip. He was making signals, and we realized he wanted to tell me something. We put a pad of paper in his hand, and he wrote, Semper Fi. Well, if you've been a Marine or if... Like myself, you're an admirer of the Marines. You know those words are a battle cry, a greeting, and a legend in the Marine Corps. They're Marine shorthand for the motto of the Corps, Semper Fidelis, always faithful. General Kelly has a reputation for being a very sophisticated general and a very tough Marine. But he cried when he saw those words. And who can blame him? That Marine and all those others like him living and dead have been faithful to their ideals. They've given willingly of themselves so that a nearly defenseless people in a region of great strategic importance to the free world will have a chance someday to live lives free of murder and mayhem and terrorism. I think that young Marine and all of his comrades have given every one of us something to live up to.
0: Reagan would not announce a withdrawal after the tragedy with the Marine barracks. But after a few more months, the Lebanese government again collapsing, Reagan ordered the peacekeeping force out. Lebanon may have sunk a lesser president. The mistakes that were made there, lack of a clear mission, lack of force, no support from the populace, uncontrolled ground, really might have been used against a modern president today. But part of the reason Reagan did not suffer from Lebanon was that U.S. forces would be involved in another invasion right after this event. Still, Lebanon was, as Colin Powell said years later, one of the goofiest operations ever mounted. It was a country beset with every problem of the Middle East. Reagan's defense, we had vital interest in Lebanon, a country so far away, was, rang hollow to anybody who knew better, but there was something admirable in the Lebanon operation. It was an early American attempt at peacemaking an attempt to broaden our policy choices, to make us a player in the Middle East, an honest broker. It was linked with an attempt to build on Jimmy Carter's Camp David Accord, working as President Clinton later would through King Hussein of Jordan as a moderate ally. It was a diversion from Reagan's one-track rhetoric against the Soviet Union that demonstrated that he was a thinker and a game-time decision-maker and in control often of policy choices. It was also an attempt to stop people from shooting each other. We don't know what would happen if U.S. forces had stayed in initially instead of leaving after that 30-day period. We don't know if that massacre in West Beirut, in Beirut, would not have happened. For a president routinely labeled as a warmonger, Lebanon was an indication that Reagan could seek peace as well. When the operation was hopeless, president didn't linger. didn't worry about the politics of withdrawing Prior to the embassy bombing, Reagan diverted a ship that was headed to Lebanon and sent them south to a small island, a nation that few Americans had heard of. It was ostensibly the result of a cry for help from island nations in the Caribbean, in Dominica, in the Grenadines, Two rapidly escalating events on the island of Grenada. The country's leader, Maurice Bishop, was no friend to the United States. He was a communist with ties to Cuba. But he was overthrown in a military coup, and the United States feared the result of that move more than they feared Bishop, especially because Grenada had been on U.S. radar for a while for building an airport that the U.S. thought might be used to provide Soviet and Cuban military transports, a way to land in the island. Grenada insisted that never was the case, but the runway at 9,000 feet was, the Reagan administration felt, longer than what was needed for commercial flights. The British were helping to build the airport, but so were Cuban construction workers, which the CIA felt workers and soldiers at the same time. On October 25, 1983, 0500, American forces left from Barbados and invaded the island in an operation dubbed Urgent Fury. 7,000 troops stormed the island and secured a medical school where Americans went to study. It was feared they might be taken as hostages. They drew fire from both the grenaded forces loyal to the coup and from some Cubans. Though the invasion was the first significant hostile use of U.S. forces since Vietnam, the operation was never seriously contested. I mean, it did take a few days, and reinforcements would have to be called off ships. There turned out to be two medical campuses, not just one is original thought, poor planning. were block, when they did land, they found less weapons in the island and half-empty warehouses that had been claimed previously to be full of weapons. There were disputes as to how many Cubans were actually on the island, though there certainly were Cubans, and there certainly were Cubans firing on American troops. There were 18 soldiers lost. Some were friendly fire casualties. There's the indiscriminate bombing of an insane asylum where inmates there were killed. But the questions surrounding Grenada were about the motives. Was it to cover up that loss in Lebanon? Well, Reagan had ordered the ship to the island before the explosion. And the Caribbean governments did ask for help, the ones surrounding the island. On the other hand, these governments were strong allies. And Margaret Thatcher and the British government opposed the invasion led to a bitter phone call between Reagan and Thatcher, normally allies. Thatcher on BBC said, If you're going to pronounce a new law that wherever there is communism imposed against the will of the people, then the U.S. shall enter, then we are going to have really terrible wars in the world. An isolated case? Or did Margaret Thatcher help to cool off any future ambitions the Reagan administration may have had? Reagan, in a meeting with congressional leaders, referred to the day when the people of Lebanon will welcome us. But the meeting was about Grenada, leading Tip O'Neill and others to believe that Grenada was really about Lebanon. Were the students really in danger? The first round of students interviewed on Ted Koppel's nightline said they didn't feel harmed at all. But that contention was destroyed when a group of students hissed the tarmac. At the airport, upon arriving in the United States, having been rescued, but the second campus, where Americans were trapped during the day of invasion, was never harmed. George Schultz thinks the inv- invasion was important, that it sent a message. He notes how, in Suriname, they were worried about the leader joining up with Cuba, and he broke off those relations after Grenada. Nicaragua contacts the ambassador, the u s ambassador, to say, "Hey, If you ever need to evacuate Americans here, let's set up a process. They want to avoid a justification for an invasion. It sent a signal. And if a country goes nose to nose with Uncle Sam under Reagan's administration, Schultz said, Castro would not or could not come to the rescue. For Tip O'Neill, former Speaker of the House, he saw it as a blatant starting point. They're going to use this as practice for invading Nicaragua. O'Neill felt. Gretaugh was condemned by Britain, as we mentioned, condemned by most of the nations of the world. There was an overwhelming vote in the United Nations against it. That did not spoil my breakfast, Reagan said. Just like the second person to land on the moon is not known as well as Neil Armstrong, Reagan being the second president to go to China is not really in history as important as the first president to go to China, Richard Nixon. But I believe given where we are today with China, 2016, the amount of trade we do, the amount of Treasury bonds that they own, and the amount of things that we buy from China. Reagan becomes an important president because it's under his administration where trade with China gets serious. Yes, we'd had a bit of the thawing of the relations under Nixon, the normalizing of relations under Carter. It's in 1984, during Reagan's administration, where the U.S. becomes China's third largest trading partner, second to Japan and Hong Kong, which at that time was a British colony. China is using the proximity of Hong Kong and creating a special economic zone under their leader, Deng Xiaoping, to trade with the West. China's GDP goes up 10% a year in the 1980s. Foreign trade triples from $20 billion to $60 billion between 1978 and 1985. During that same time, it goes from $1 billion to $7 billion with the U.S. U.S. companies enter the country, H.J. Hines, American Express, Coca-Cola, Kodak, Nabisco, Bell South. In 1986, there's also a turning point. The U.S. enters a billion-dollar trade deficit with China, and that continues today. By the end of Reagan's presidency, trade has increased ten times. The combo of Reagan's economic diplomacy and Chinese economic reforms using Hong Kong as a third party leads to this result. In many different countries, the Reagan presidency had a great effect and effect on what we see today. Recently, Ronald Reagan's second wife, Nancy Reagan, the love of his life, passed away. And so uh, this provokes me to give some unplanned comments on Nancy Reagan's role in the Reagan presidency. I can't do a complete talk about Nancy Reagan's life. There's, I think, some exaggeration, also some truth. First of all, I think the most important thing to consider is there probably wouldn't have been a President Reagan. For that matter, probably not a Governor Reagan, maybe, but definitely not a President Reagan without the encouragement and support of a wife like Nancy Reagan. So you start with that. Now... I think there's a perception that Nancy Reagan was controlling a lot of events in the White House, but I don't believe that direct control was there. I think there was some influence. Mostly Nancy Reagan operated through staff, and I'm thinking of James Baker. I'm thinking of Michael Deaver. When Don Regan really didn't get the support of Nancy Reagan, his days were numbered. So she had a kind of indirect control through the staff who would keep her informed. She influenced things that way. But if Reagan felt strongly about an issue, Ronald Reagan prevailed. And there were some issues she simply could do little about. Indeed, while she might have been part of the influence for Don Regan's firing after the Iran-Contra scandal, she couldn't stop Don Reagan from being hired in the first place, even though she didn't like him very much. So I think there's a limit to the perception that's sometimes out there about the level of control that she had over the presidency. Now, how about all that astrology? Well, Michael Deaver does recount how Nancy Reagan did try to get him to change times of flights for astrological reasons. I don't think the presidency was run on astrology or anything like that. And most importantly in all of this is I believe Nancy Reagan's biggest contribution is that she pushed her husband towards better relations with the Soviets. I don't think she's directly responsible for the end of the Cold War or anything like that, but she was a one of many forces pushing him in that direction and encouraging staff who were doing the same. And for that and so many other things, she should be remembered. This is part four.
1: We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own.